Welcome to the Startup Grind Podcast. Starting a company is not for the faint of heart. They're always questioning, 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 tweaking, tweaking, tweaking. Where we talk to entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and thought leaders about how to build a great company. Like my friends, like you think you're crazy. I think you gotta be a little nuts. And change the world in the process. We optimize for impact instead of profit. It's never been a more exciting time to be an entrepreneur. From Startup Grind chapters across the globe. The chapter director for Cape Town. Boise, Idaho. London. Mala, Palestine. Guangzhou, China. And delivered to you every Monday and Wednesday. It's a startup grind. TopTile is an amazing company. They've got over 2,500 developers and designers in their network. They've screened them extensively so that you get to work with only the top 3%. So basically, you just let TopTile know what you're looking for, they understand your business and technical requirements, and they search for the right person for the job. You don't have to do all of the screening and interviews that you normally would, and they make it really easy for you. You can even do part-time hires that are a few hours a week, and full-time hires too. You can get an amazing no-risk-free trial for up to two weeks. Get started with TopTal by emailing laura at startupgrind.com. The best part is that you can work with the developer and designer, and if you're not satisfied by the end of the trial, you don't pay anything. TopTal pays the talent. So to get started with this trial, email laura at startupgrind.com. Welcome to Wednesday's episode of the Startup Grind podcast. Today we have a conversation with Peng T. Ong, one of the most successful entrepreneurs to come out of Singapore. Peng is the founder and CEO of Interwoven, which went public on the NASDAQ. Prior to Interwoven, Peng was the co-founding CTO of Match.com, which was acquired by IAC. After Interwoven, Peng founded Accentuate, the leader in the enterprise identity management space. The three businesses he started combined now generate annual revenues that total more than $1 billion. Peng earned a BS in electrical engineering from the University of Texas and a master's in computer science from the University of Illinois. Peng is also a passionate music lover and digital hi-fi fanatic. Let's listen in to Peng Ong, interviewed by our Singapore chapter director earlier this year. Let's welcome Peng, everyone. Um, so yeah, Peng, founder and CEO of uh, three companies that have been listed. Um, Obviously, one being Match.com. Um, Interwoven was the first company that you started. It's a content management um, software. It was actually the second. Second, okay. Match was the first. Match was the first. It was in 1995 that you launched Match, right? Uh, 94, 93, 90. So during that period, I guess my first question is, how were you running two companies at once? Um, actually, um, uh, left match kind of early before it got too far um, because uh, I, I realized my comfort zone is more in sort of the corporate hardcore software type work so I, I started in a woven uh, about two three years into match sure and how different is it starting a b2c company after a b2b uh, these terms weren't around when we started the company uh, and uh, we're just figuring out business, so it's just different ways of looking at business. B to C, B to B is how you make money. So, what did you enjoy or not enjoy? What were the limitations with each that you found? Limitations with each. Hmm. Well, at that point, uh, most um, tech companies were not selling to consumers. We were selling to other businesses, which in turn made stuff that was sold to customers. So. Um, Tech was very different at that point, and um, most of us in the software field thought very traditionally. Like for example, Reed Hastings, he's the CEO of uh, Netflix. His first company was pure software. It was a great 
piece of software, but it was a soft piece of software for software engineers to test software. That's what we did back then. You know, it was kind of circular, and it was only, I think, uh, with the advent of Netscape, and then uh, Amazon came up early, uh, Match was early, you know, uh, where technology, specifically software, was used to address consumer needs directly. So then, can you tell us more about um, how did Match come about? What was the story behind that? Was it a personal dating um, frustration, or was it, um, yeah, so how did you find your co-founder as well? Uh, well, that's the story he told, but uh, we, we actually, Match.com didn't start off as Match.com. It started off as um, Electric Classifieds Inc. If you look at Craigslist, if you look at eBay, uh, we sort of had a, had a verticalized view of this business, this classifieds business. It didn't make any sense for us, for human beings, to go, you know, get your finger black looking down classifieds through many, many newspapers. So we thought there must be a better way to match buyers and sellers, uh, you know, create a marketplace, basically. And Electric Classifieds was the name of the company that we started, uh, and Match was sort of the first uh, vertical. Uh, personals basically that we, we launched and that sort of made sense because if you look at a lot of newspapers at that time the personals was one of the highest revenues um, uh, vertical so we started that and we actually screwed up a lot so the result was we only had that right and uh, in the end that was sold and it became you know match.com uh, became very significant so it wasn't in a love and relationship space to begin with uh, we didn't start off being very specific about that. You know, it was just part of a bigger strategy that didn't work. Sure. And you founded Monks Hill in 2014, um, based here in Singapore. You've been investing in the region um, for about two years now. What have you learned that will influence your future investment decisions? Um, I think so. Just some background on that, you know, be before Mansil, I had spent uh, a few years investing in China. And uh, even before that, I sort of understood, started to look in China. And even before that, was looking at investing in the U.S. So I had a kind of a spectrum of, of different perspectives from different ecosystems. China happens to be probably the most relevant to this part of the world, but is, uh, Singapore is sort of a mixture, but if you go outside Singapore, China becomes more relevant. I, I often uh, give Chinese uh, business model examples to Indonesians, Filipinos, etc. Um, that because they're much more relevant. Um, so what, what I've learned is not surprising. We, uh, when we started Mangsil, we were very, um, I guess, clear that we weren't sort of uh, going into the market that was mature, uh, that had great deal flow and all that. We, we were expecting to be early in a market where the, the companies were forming, the, the knowledge on how to build a startup was forming. You know, I still see a lot of um, startups who are building business models that are not VC fundable. Right? Uh, not less so here in Singapore, but out in, in ASEAN, you see a lot of that. Um, so, information is, is not um, ready, readily available to a lot of entrepreneurs, and, but we also see an ecosystem in ASEAN that's changing very, very fast. Right? I mean, uh, I was part of 
uh, Infocom uh, investments. I was the chairman for about eight years there, and we were building the ecosystem. And one of our first meetings, you know, we had like maybe the first three rows of this, you know, uh, group here. There's not a lot of people uh, you know, eight, ten years ago in the ecosystem. Right today, you know, you get halls packed with, with people doing tech startups now. So that, that is great for Singapore, uh, but if you move out to the other cities, it's not quite like that. Although the governments are starting to pay attention, they're starting to put programs together. Um, so it's early days still, but it's changing really fast. Uh, and it's, it's not unlike China about 10, 15 years ago. So let's talk about um, some cases. What are some disappointments you've faced in investments so far? If you can um, give a couple of high-level examples, and how have you helped the founders to get through these periods? Um, so, thinking out here, um, um, the norms, the investing norms, uh, are not as sort of quote-unquote strict as you would like. Uh, in, in as in the U.S., you know. Uh, for example, a term sheet could get cancelled by an investor, right? For no reason other than they think that they changed their minds, right? Uh, that is, for example, a no-no in in the U.S. In China, sometimes that happens, but usually it's not a good idea to do that. Um, but there is no norms here, so people are learning it about it. Um, the in the entrepreneurs we tend to invest in a very, I'd say resilient, right? If they hit a problem, they work through it, they work on it, they, they don't sleep, they get it solved. So I think we're fortunate that we have not had to like, give therapy to a, to a founder. Uh, most of them are really, really good. Uh, if you get a chance to meet any of our founders, I think you get a sense of it. Um, that, that's the number one criteria we look for. Uh, we do you know, um, spend you know, evenings, dinners uh, with various founders. I, I just had dinner with Zhang Wan, for example, um, talking about the fact that you know, he's cranking up from you know, uh, a, a few tens of people to, I think, uh, uh, Ninja is now at about four or five hundred people. Right? And Ninja Man just raised 30 million. Yeah, yeah, they've been doing incredibly well. But you know, when you're 28, 29 years old and suddenly you've got half of, you know, 500 people to manage and growing you know, at 50% a year, it is hard. Right? Uh, understanding what is the right thing, how you should be feeling about the situation, the cultural changes, the political um, uh, waves that start to come in, into larger organization, um, it's, it's not easy. So, but these guys are pretty robust. They keep running. You spent some time um, investing in China via your own venture fund, GSR Ventures. Um, how different is the landscape over there? Uh, tech talent, I've heard, is plenty, and it's yeah. at a much higher skill. Um, how is the VC landscape there as well? Um, the problem in China today uh, is slightly different than from when I started investing in China. Uh, today, there's just, just too much money there, so that's... Uh, Not a problem? Uh, <laughs> it is a problem because uh, not all of it is smart money. So it funds 
projects that maybe should not be fund, funded. Uh, and uh, you know, um, there's too much uh, sort of reliance on, on just being able to raise a lot of money and the founders burn through a lot of money. You're going to see, I think, a whole bunch of shutdowns, slowdowns in the next year, two years, three years. If they haven't raised enough money, a, a lot of the founders are really smart, so they, 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 when the valuations are great, they just they don't care about the dilution that much. They just raise a lot of money, and they raise more money than they ever need to get the company to break even. So they can take 10 years to get the break even, that's okay, they can keep doing it. So those companies are okay, but those aren't the majority, and you're gonna see a bunch of shutdowns. So that's, that's today, right? Um, the talent pool, um, China has you know, 1.3 billion people and uh, one of the largest engineering graduate, graduation cohorts every year in any country. So yeah, they've got lots of talent. You know, we, we just cannot match that in, in quantity uh, out, out in Southeast Asia. Um, uh, the talent though is, is, not, is not at the same um, level of experience as the US. Right. Uh, the U.S. has a lot of um, uh, uh, people who have learned from the industry, you know, the more senior guys coaching the more junior guys. You know, the Chinese tech ecosystem is about 10, 15 years old. So there's not a lot of senior guys that have done a lot of big things. And those are few and far between, but they are very, very popular with entrepreneurs. You know. uh, so the mission of IIPL has changed quite a bit uh, since, since I, I, I left uh, and Steve took over as chairman, and, and rightly so, I think. Um, when we started, there was no, basically, you know, where are the startups? There are no startups, right? Very, very few of them. And uh, our, our goal was to try to change that. So uh, we brought in probably about 150 what we call world-class VC-funded startups into, into the ecosystem. This was before TIS. Uh, this started in around 06, the 06 timeframe. So by the time TIS came in, it was like lighting, throwing a match in a barrel of oil. It just boom, it just took off, right? Um, so, so the mission was very different. Um, and uh, we didn't look at ourselves as sort of government uh, um, investing in private sector, we're, 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 all we're trying to do is get as many companies into Singapore with, with expertise in them in Singapore as possible. Uh, specifically, when we said 150, it was sort of engineering teams, not just sales. Um, so I think a number of you might be from some of these organizations from years ago. Um, yeah, you definitely see that happening now. I was just at Google um, and the VP of product for the next billion project uh, was talking about, I mean, it was a hiring event really. What do you think, what do you expect to be happening in the next three to four years when these engineers come back from the valley, uh, from a place like Google, uh, will they start, you know, a much, will they sort of uh, bunk up the um, level of product management in this region? Are, they gonna, are you gonna see a lot more product investments, product companies instead of marketplaces and B2C type companies? A quick break from the interview for some recent startup headlines. Online beauty startup Althea has raised $3.5 million from 500 startups, among others. The Korean-based company sells makeup and other beauty products across Southeast Asia. Facebook, Microsoft, and Spanish carrier Telefonica have teamed up to lay a new transatlantic fiber optic cable. 
The cable is known as Maria. Maria will cross roughly 4,000 miles under sea, stretching from Spain to Virginia. This follows similar moves Amazon and Google have made and will represent Microsoft's third public investment in subsea cabling. Vietnam recently blocked their citizens' access to Facebook during President Obama's visit. Some activists suggest that the shutdown was an attempt to limit the potential for political protests. A social network has been blocked in Vietnam several times this month and is seemingly related to the burgeoning demonstrations. Let's get back to the interview with Peng Ong. Um, so, um, just to go back to the government role again, and then I'll move to this question. Um, if you, if you, I think hopefully EDB learned a lesson about what it takes to engage R&D in MNCs in Singapore. Um, my company, Accentuate, was sold to IBM. That's the first time IBM had a software lab in Singapore. When, when my company became the, the my engineers became the, the core of the IBM software lab in Singapore. Um, EDB had been trying to get them there to do a soft, software engineering in Singapore for I think 20 years. Right? All they needed to do was buy a company. Same thing with Google. Right? They just bought Pi and uh, started the engineering group. Uh, same thing with uh, that's another company, Zopin. Right? Um, so. Um, that process, uh, if you wonder why all the big companies are in Israel, it's because of that process. Um, so, um, to the extent that um, uh, we can create that kind of uh, you know, amount of talent, um, not talent, but companies that are valuable to the world's biggest companies, uh, it helps anchor them here, and when they they're anchored here, they bring other resources. You know, uh, were you talking about Caesar and Gupta just now? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So C C Caesar was in Ancentry. He was in, my, in, in he was an engineer in in my company, and uh, he went to Google for I think about eight years, and then he's back here. Right. Uh, he's one of the top. Uh, he's probably the highest ranking Singapore Singaporean in. In Google, you know, so we need people like that to say, "Hey, look, I want to be based out of here. I want to build value for my company out of here." Um, but that only works if that company, Google or Facebook or one of the others, can reach out to an ecosystem of really good people, including companies, including talent. Right? Uh, it's not going to happen out of the, the goodness of their hearts. Right? More events like these should hopefully help. Yeah. <clears throat> um, how have you, I know that you're currently based in Jakarta. How did you get there? Uh, how did the move happen from China to Singapore to Jakarta? Yeah. Um, I wasn't in Singapore that long. Uh, when Hoi and I decided to start Mangsil Ventures, it was clear, you know, uh, when you say uh, Mangsil is based in Singapore, I always correct people. Uh, it's, it's actually a Cayman Island fund. Uh, <laughs> with headquarters in uh, Singapore and, and Jakarta. Um, so uh, when, when we looked at this, we want to be an ASEAN fund, a Southeast Asian fund. And there's no way to be a Southeast Asian fund if you ignore Indonesia. Right? Indonesia is half of ASEAN. Right? So one of us had to be there. He just had a baby boy, he's not going to move, so I guess I'm it. And uh, what keeps you busy these days? I mean, I know that you're working on a bunch of projects, including Solve Education, a gaming, um, a gaming company uh, that creates access to education to um, 
rural areas in Indonesia. What else are you working on and what is your mission for the next 10 years? The, the reason uh, I, I wanted to do monk films very, very simple. I think it's our time in Southeast Asia to start having, having conversations with the rest of the world as a peer. And if you look at how the U.S. does that, and you look at how Europe does that, and today you can look at how China does that, it's actually through products and services. It's not just intellectual conversations. It's through, uh, we're defined by our cell phones at, at some level. We're defined by our, um, uh, I don't know, um, Kindles, right? Um, how do we have that dialogue with the rest of the world and, and be looked upon as a peer if we don't have that capability, we, if we're not able to build world-class stuff. So I want to be part of building the next generation of ASEAN companies, but ASEAN globals, not just you know, local ASEAN local companies. And if you look at our investments, we try to go for those that have that kind of a potential. Um, I'll open questions to the floor. Uh, does anyone have a question just at the back there? Uh, I founded three companies so far, yes. Sort of uh, rejigger your business. You know, sometimes it's the revenue model, sometimes it's the technology to, to, make, to make, um, make the business survive. Um, in my experience, um, I really never had any of these big pivots. You know, my, my general philosophy, if I have an investment thesis, I say, I'll go there, please invest in this, right? On the way there, if I go, well, there it doesn't exist, my philosophy is actually, you want your money back, as opposed to, let me try something else that I'm interested in doing. So, so um, I'm not a big fan of big pivots. Small pivots happen all the time. Oh, the bubble is here and almost bursting. Uh, I think it's burst already. Uh, the, the China, for sure, you know, it's gone. You know, uh, the U.S. is, is gone. Uh, gone meaning the bubble has burst. Uh, India, for sure. Right? Uh, the good news for us is I don't think we really ever had that bubble in Southeast Asia, except for a few companies with crazy valuations at the high end. We never had a real big bubble here, so I think we're okay. Uh, the valuations have been reasonable so far. Um, London, I don't know. I don't pay attention that much to, to Europe. Thank you. I have a question from Mr. Peng. Uh, what advice would you give to startups running education in markets like Myanmar or mm. Vietnam? Um, get to break even as soon as you can. <laughs> because not a lot of people fund that. Right, so get to break even as soon as you can. No, this might sound like a joke, but I'm actually pretty serious. Because if you look at the scale of a lot of these businesses, it, they won't go very big. So as a result, uh, not a lot of people will fund them. And also, uh, education, healthcare, areas that governments regulate, uh, and especially areas where governments actually dominate, right? Uh, Innovation tends to slow down because of regulation. So um, and that's one of the reasons you don't get a lot of investments in that area, those areas. 
Um, so you're probably doing that because you're motivated by, by trying to help people, and that's good. You know, uh, my my um, self-education project is is that, but it's not set up as a for-profit company. Right? It's a it's a foundation. Um, I think uh, yeah. Ivan from uh, Ted Vision. Yeah, hi. So just a, um, a question about you know the, the age of tech unicorns. Right? Um, so there were companies that got crazy valuations, um, crazy funds that they raised. Um, and for a lay person like, like myself, you know, I don't see you know the end of the tunnel. You know, um, people want money. Uh, you don't know how you're going to monetize. And a lot of them are thinking deep value now. Um, and now people are talking about the age of the tech cockroaches. Right. Um, so companies that can they can go through the tough times, um, and I'm sure VCs all want to you know they're looking for the ROI, right? Like eventually um, the companies will be profitable. So I think now you know during this time where you know business is pretty bad, um, you know they'll be more uh, conservative with their investments. So how do you see the landscape move, uh, or how is it moving on the, uh, today and, and maybe five years from now? Um, I spend some amount of time explaining to uh, especially non-tech uh, economists, bankers, not, not tech bankers but people that are outside the, the, the tech field that I, I look at um, uh, especially government folks. I look at um, what we do in two chunks. There are actually two different things happening. There's this thing that we do as startups that are called va uh, value creation right, in an economy. And, and it's very clear across from the US to China to India to here, uh, we are creating value in the economy. Uh, no one argues that. Right? So uh, if you create value in the economy, you should get rewarded for it. There is another, and the opposite is if you don't create value, you know, you, you at some point fold your company, right? Uh, so, but there's another thing going on that confuses the whole picture, and that's the startup funding market. It's one of the least transparent markets. It's, it's, it's driven a lot by egos and by, you know, comp plans that don't make sense, right? So. So let me give you a very simple example. I don't want to get too deep into this, but for a fund manager like me, right? If I, if I invest and I lose money, I don't make money, right? If I invest, or if I don't invest, I don't make money. If I invest and I make money, I make money. I make money for the, for the LPs I make money. So the only scenario where I make a lot of carry interest is if I invest, right? So can, can you see how that biases the whole market? So, so there's all kinds of crazy things going on in this very opaque funding system, right? You get a unicorn and you go, why is it a unicorn? Well, it could be somebody asking his buddy to fund the company at this level so that he can mark up his books. It could be something as simple as that, right? Which is not the right thing, but it could happen. There's no way to know. Um, so my, my point to people in the government, to entrepreneurs is, as much as possible, ignore that. Because if you start playing that totally emotional up and down roller coaster ride game, right, uh, every few years you f 
feel ecstasy and then agony, you know. It, it just doesn't make any sense at some level because it's not correlated too much to value creation. Now, the strange thing is some of the valuation actually makes sense, right? The multi-billion dollar valuation, some of it actually makes sense. Some of, a lot of it don't, doesn't. So you got to figure out, if, if you care to play in this space, you got to figure out what makes sense and what doesn't. Don't just say because the guy has got a unicorn valuation, it's a stupid valuation. Sometimes it actually makes sense. Sometimes it doesn't. So again, if you're an entrepreneur, just focus on value creation in the real economy, not in this fake market. You are a startup founder and now you are a, a VC. So which journey is more interesting? Can you compare the two and would you do a startup again? One. Secondly, being on both sides of the table, what, would, what advice would you give to a startup founder? <laughs> the last one is a bit open, but uh, uh, they're, they're different. It's apples and oranges, right? Um, why, why am I doing uh, a fund now? So I, I, I realized in my last company that no matter how successful I got, it's, it's one company I can affect. Right? Uh, you know, when, when you think about how to make a difference, uh, at some level you think about scale. So if I do a fund, right, I've got a dozen, two dozen companies I can work with per fund. Right? So over a span of six, eight years, I can work with 50 companies. Right? Totally different scale of uh, job creation, of influence, of value creation. Although for each one of them, I do a little bit. But that little bit could mean significant, especially if it's strategic. So that's why I'm doing uh, a fund right now. Um, it's about making a difference. Uh, and what advice would I give uh, entrepreneurs? My, my favorite thing is to get people to be very clear and very aware of their intentions. Right? Uh, too many people get into startups because it's the in thing to do and they don't understand what the commitment is, they don't understand um, why they're doing it, and the why is, is very, very important. So get the clarity on that. Um, as a smaller company, when you're offering an enterprise solution, how do you overcome that barrier to get enterprises to, or what are strategies to overcome the barrier to get enterprises to adopt your solution, assuming that it solves a pain point? Yeah. The, so that, this is my background mostly, right? I built enterprise systems uh, and sold them. Um, the good news is your question is covered by a lot of books, right? It's been around long enough. People understand this problem. Uh, do, do the sales learning curve, you know, uh, from, it's not a book, it's paper. Uh, from Mark Leslie, for example, great, set of ideas on how you think about booting up, how you do the startup phase of your B2B business. Um, so um, the general idea is you need to find these early adopters uh, in more established organizations that will take you in because their pain is so great they, they need some kind of solution. 
and, and then when it works, there'll be your initial testimony and you bootstrap from there. So that's the general idea. A lot of details uh, I'm omitting here. And just a follow-up question, in terms of, um, you know, people often ask questions about what attributes are attractive to VC, right? But in terms of a startup with choices of who they want to be their, their investors, what are the sorts of things that you should look for in a good partnership? Um, that, there's no straight answer to that because if you're an experienced entrepreneur and you basically know what you need to do, then you, and, and you have your coaches and your networks to help you out, then you find uh, maybe the, the, you don't really care about sort of this VC is really good at helping entrepreneurs versus this one. You know, you just, if the valuation is too, the difference is too big, you just go for the better valuation. Um, you know, here's a VC telling you that there's no difference at some level. Um, uh, money is money, you need the money. Um, but if it's your first time or you have blind spots, then you, you, you need to figure out um, people that you can work with, that you can learn from, or can point you to people you can learn from. Um, the very important thing entrepreneurs forget is your investor is like your short-term wife or spouse. Right? You're going to stay together for five years, maybe eight years, maybe ten years. Right? If you don't like them, life could be hell. Right? Um, same for the VCs. Right? If I don't like an entrepreneur, I basically don't invest right? um, because there's just too much. Life's too short in there. <laughs> TopTal is an amazing company. They've got over 2,500 developers and designers in their network. They've screened them extensively so that you get to work with only the top 3%. So basically, you just let TopTal know what you're looking for, they understand your business and technical requirements, and they search for the right person for the job. You don't have to do all of the screening and interviews that you normally would, and they make it really easy for you. You can even do part-time hires that are a few hours a week, and full-time hires too. You can get an amazing no-risk free trial for up to two weeks. Get started with TopTal by emailing laura at startupgrind.com. The best part is that you can work with the developer and designer, and if you're not satisfied by the end of the trial, you don't pay anything. TopTal pays the talent. So to get started with this trial, email laura at startupgrind.com. 